If you go into gold, like you rewind probably what two years, so Canada, North American gold. Like, like if we look at the actual ASX companies, it was going to be like you know the next best thing. Or- it just goes to show that maybe a, a company's advantages in a particular location aren't necessarily transferable to a different workforce and a different location and potentially different geology types. Been uh, for those people invested in uranium, it's been always a story of next year, next year for about 10 years or something, um, which has been frustrating. But that said, if you look at it, the fundamentals of the market look as good as they have, you know, in, in the last 10 years. Our interest is also in the bit shorter term, in, you know, a bit of a squeeze, for the lack of a better term, that looks like it's shaping up with the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust in the physical market. And then there's a, another fund out of Europe just started up, which also wants to buy pounds in the physical market. So you could get that confluence of factors where you've got the positive long-term story and then a shorter term spike added, which, which is why we've got a relatively high weighting uh, there at the minute. Right, g'day Money Miners, we're bringing a bloody tell you what, if you're an AFR subscriber, you would have read a sensational article with this great looking bloke in it last week, Matthew Lakesford from Terra Capital. Mate, next time you want to do an article, mate, you come to us first, we're the new top dogs in mining. (laughs) Welcome to Money Mine, Cobber. Thank you, thank you guys, thanks for having me, what an intro. How long have, uh, is that going to last, you're going to get shit about that article for? That's uh, It's been happening a lot. I hope it ends soon. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, Trav, you've um, Trav's off running some errands, mate. You got me and JD today, so mate, thanks very much for coming on. Great to catch up. Thanks for uh, allowing JJ to create such a great event for the uh, Gold Series, mate. How yeah, it was bloody, good. How, how many free tickets did Terra Capital get since you sleep in the same bed with the <laughs> organizer, mate? What sort of privileges <laughs> did you get, mate? You'd be surprised. Given uh, given we're married, but um, yeah, we you know myself and uh, we had Dylan from the office, uh, our head of research in as well. So it was a great little event. Very good, mate. Like, okay, let's roll in. We always like to start with uh, everyone's got a bit of underlying, I guess, thematic strategy to how your fund works. Terra Capital, you're based in Sydney. Give us the scope, mate. What are you invested in? What's the guy? What's your strategy? Yeah, so so we are a long-only global natural resources equities fund. That's pretty broad. Uh, it means basically we invest predominantly on the ASX and the TSX, Antlers Stock Exchange, um, given that's the other major mining index besides the ASX for, for, for mid-caps, small caps, and I guess there's – and large caps there too. But, I mean, I guess you also get on the London Stock Exchange a few large caps, same with New York. But, but we're mostly ASX and TSX. And and we are all cap um, in our um, in our uh, market cap range. You know, we'll do we'll do small small miners uh, post uh, discovery exploration. You know, so they've so they may had that initial drill hit, but then they're expanding the resource or, or whatever the case may be. Um, and then we're also in producers and developers and across the whole spectrum. Um, yeah, we've been. Uh, We've been doing it in in both Jeremy and I would were doing the same type of investing in the same space before being at at Terra. Um, he worked at a hedge fund in London. I was at a um, a mid tier uh, specialising in the in the sector. And then yes, Jeremy set up Terra in two thousand and ten. So the flagship's been running for thirteen years as of thirty June just passed. 
Um, and then we've got a green metals fund as well, which is similar to the natural resources strategy, just just no fossil fuels in there. So what drew you to, I guess, mining? You're based on the East Coast, obviously, all the, there's a, all the hot air and bloody everything coming out of Perth, mate. She's all going West Perth and Subiaco if you want to, if you want a bit of liquidity sometimes, I guess. <laughs> but from being based over East, what draws you to predominantly invest in mining? Yeah, so I, I mean, I am, I am from Perth originally, um, grew up there, went to uni there, and so is Jeremy actually. So a lot of the people in the industry, you know, we've known for a long time, which can be handy. It's also good just to know the places um, and and all the brokers, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, we, we you know, there's a lot. We we head over to Perth a lot. There's obviously a whole host of companies there. Um, so we're over there a lot and um, also head out to site. But then also, you know, if, you, if you're really um, choosing this as your profession and something you're doing and you're looking at, Mining and energy as a as an equity sector, you've got to be global in in our opinion because there's some things that are that the Canadians are better at than the Aussies and vice versa. And some commodities you can get better exposure over there than you can here in our opinion. Um, so yeah, being global is one thing that's probably different from most other natural resources funds in Australia. I mean, there's not many of us full stop, but um, I think we're probably I think we've got. 50, over half the fund in TSX um, equities at the minute. Maddie, you've said uh, not too long ago that resources as a, a, se- a sector are cheap versus other sectors, you know, in the ASX and more broadly. Why do you sort yeah. of think that is um, just broadly speaking to start with? And then where do you think we are at in, in the cycle, given the, the sort of future we're kind of seeing for the, for the next 10 years in the resource yeah. space? J, JD's going to hold you accountable for everything you've said in history today, mate. He's done his research <laughs> on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, recorded in time. Anyway, no, but um, yeah, I mean, I don't think people can argue at the metrics of whether or not the sector is cheap or not. You know, you've got like the major miners, or five times earnings, you compare that to any other sector where you got companies trading on 20 and 30 times, you know, that's relatively cheap on that basis. But then because of the underinvestment, and this is what every resources investor will, or commentator will say, you know, there's been an underinvestment in into new supply of 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 uh commodities through investment into into mining projects. And and so therefore as you look out to 2024, 5, 6, you know, the cupboard is is pretty bare in terms of new projects that can come on and and satiate the demand. And, and that's that's just normal demand that ticks alongside GDP. But if you add on top the decarbonisation um, demand, green demand, if you want to call it that, well, then there's some commodities that look particularly compelling. So I think that from a low earnings multiple basis you can you can have those earnings multiples normalize you know the mining industry in a in a bit more of a positive market will trade on you know more like eight to 12 times so you could have that multiple uh, normalization or expansion whatever you want to call it but you could also have that in a rising commodity price environment as well so which we think will happen for some commodities so um I think it's pretty exciting at the moment and you know you guys have on the uh on the talked about all the m a that's happening and you know that's just that's just the Aussie stuff there's been a whole host of other things that have happened internationally that are, are you know 
more oh, i mean there's been a bunch of gold but there's also been a bunch of gold interest in copper miners or gold interest in gold miners that have more copper um and then the rest of them are kind of decarbonization focused you know whether that's tech tech glencore you know copper miners expanding production bhp's invested now a couple of hundred million dollars into fuel mining which is tsx listed um so so it's happening and i think the industry incumbents are seeing what's on the horizon you know they 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 know what how long it takes to develop these mines how hard it is to permit them um and so they're at the moment sitting there saying well why don't i why don't i buy something which is already that's already defined um and save save ourselves the trouble of that and hopefully shorten the shorten the length of time for them um to add uh, those commodities to their future production the the thing about MA though is that it doesn't change the overall pipeline. You know, it's just change these assets are just changing hands. It's not there hasn't been those big cap capital outlays into the development of new projects. So that's still ahead of us. And and you know, mining cycles die of overinvestment. Um and that's certainly not where we're at now. You know, we're more at the beginning of the cycle, we think, than than the end. There's not much rocks getting produced from all this MA sometimes, is there? It's all yeah, just exactly. Yeah. You also sort of reference a, a non-cyclical nature of the the demand that we're going to see in some of these battery type metals. Um, I'm kind of keen to hear how you guys internally factor that in. Is it like just in your commodity price forecasts at Terra? Yeah, so that's a that's a good point, and you know, uh, people in cyclical industries always say they're not cyclical. I guess, but. Um, <laughs> But um, uh, I, I think there there is because the green demand growth and the government funding that's available in terms you know like the um, Inflation Reduction Act in the US Repower EU which has set aside huge swathes of potential funding for um, for clean energy um, minerals and and components to be produced within the EU. Um, it does add, add some fu- that funding is not really economic economically sensitive it's more about re-industrializing the the west i guess because of china's control over these critical minerals so um that is something that you know it is that you know the u.s just wants rare earths to be for instance to rare earths to be produced in um u.s friendly locations you know they they don't they're not super uh, concerned about the economics of the projects they're funding they just need the supply of those those uh elements to come from from places that are friendlier. I want to um, hone in on this uh, TSX Canada sort of big chunk of your portfolio, mate. And this yeah. this might be a dumb question, but is it better to invest in a company in the TSX or is it better to invest with an ISX company with a Canadian or North American asset? Is there any, any difference in how the yeah, whole markets um, work? Yeah, I mean, as a, like, as a general rule, I think – Assets are in the same location as the exchange will perform better because um, because investors on that exchange will be you know most ASX investors will be familiar with the typical mining jurisdictions in Australia they'll be familiar with Kalgoorlie and they'll be you know feel familiar with the Pilbara etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's it's easier to bring people on the journey they know the other companies that have been successful there but then again you know in some commodities I think Aussie mining executives. I have more experience and are just better at developing and producing from those types of projects. Lithium being being 
key example at the minute. Um, you know, with with Patriot and the like. Um, you know, it's all it's all Aussie guys who went over and and got that going. Um, but then I guess taking a step back, um, you know, there are, there are other commodities that are uh, better done, I think, or, or there are better options, I should say, on the TSX. You know, in in uranium, for example, the the better companies are Athabasca companies, and they're listed in, on the TSX. Like you've got, you know, genuine high grade discoveries in small companies there. Like there's, um, yeah, I mean, your your listeners probably haven't come across it, but uh, it's called F3 now, Fission 3.0, which has got you know five meter hits of eighteen percent uranium, like a you know proper uh, juicy results. So, you know, it's it's nice for us to to have the option to um, express our um, commodity exposures in in different jurisdictions yeah with if you go into gold like you rewind probably what two years so canada north american gold like like if we look at the actual asx companies it was going to be like you know the next best thing or teco went up to 20 cents they're back to two cents and you had um you know silver lake got exposure there you got uh, red lake crest with bruce jack and obviously the St. Barbara saga. Um, yeah. Uh, Northern Star were getting extra yeah. exposure over there. But yeah, that Evolution, f- Red Lake. Yeah, yeah there's, that, there's that been... flavor's just totally um, gone to shit. But you obviously yeah, I, think I, long term it's going to come back. Well, yeah, I think it just goes to show that maybe your, a company's advantages in a particular location aren't necessarily transferable to a different workforce and a different location. and potentially different geology types um so it's something to be aware of i guess um and to be a little bit careful of you know you, you don't typically see people from one jurisdiction go into someone else's backyard and do amazingly well i mean there are of course some um, some exceptions but uh yeah something something to be aware of i would um but you know if i was going to invest in the red lake area for example in in um in canada i probably prefer to do it with a management team who's worked there for their whole careers so you're when you say you're 50 percent um of your fund is over in i guess north america is that saying the 50 percent is on the tsx or 50 percent is invested in companies that are have operations based over there yeah good 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 point so that's listed on the tsx and so the the assets may be in south america us canada wherever that's just where the listing is yep. um and and you know like i was saying you know you can probably get better uranium exposure silver exposure and in our opinion copper exposure at the moment on the tsx you know canadian mining executives are a bit more experienced in working in south america for example as well so um, most of our um, South American companies, not that we've got heaps of them at the minute, but they're run by Canadian management teams. Just, you know, same time zone, a bit closer. I don't know what it is. They've just got more experience there and that, that's the way it's it's ended up. Matt, putting aside for a moment the, the different sort of exposures you can get in North America and just focusing on the valuation sort of differentials that you're sort of expressed that you see on the TSX versus the ASX, what do you mm. think is the, the catalyst for the change? Like I think you in the past gave the example of a similar style gold deposit that yeah. is valued half as much in one yeah, case the other. Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's the point. I think the Canadian market um, really has larger swings than the Aussie market, and I think that's driven by the fact that 
your Canadian investor has a bit wider range of sectors, I guess, that can go into. You know, for instance, in the 20, uh, well, 2016 to 19, you know, there was all the weed companies over there that sucked a lot of risk capital out of <laughs> small cap miners. And, then, you know, then you had crypto and you've got a bigger tech segment over there. And then, of course, they're closer to the US. So they'll they'll play that those exchanges as well. But by the same token, when commodities perform well and when mining companies are performing well, you get that weight of the US investors coming to the TSX. And so while that sector can be tougher on the downside, you also get far bigger valuations and far bigger multiples on, on the upside, on the upswing too. So um, it is a bit of a, a long game and, it, and it's hard sometimes, you know, if you're comparing you know, a million ounces in just outside of Kalgoorlie versus a million ounces just um, in Ontario. So both good mining jurisdictions, you know, and the Canadian ones at half or 60% of the value, you know, it's 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 all well and good to identify that, but then what's gonna what's gonna make that change? Um, and that that's that's the more difficult thing, I guess. Matt, we've touched on the the M and A we're starting to see in the the metals and mining spaces, like in particular in the in the big end of town. And let's take sort of copper as an example. It looks pretty clear that we're not seeing the the price to incentivize new mines to come online, and we're just seeing the M and A like we spoke about. How long do you sort of think we need to see elevated prices for before we start to see a company actually build a mine again? Good question. I think you know it's a you know a few some are pretty close, and so you probably don't need too long a period of time. You know, probably six months or so. But if you if you look at the copper market and just how tight it is. Like I'd be surprised if we don't get record high copper prices. And then, I mean, I don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but sometime in the next year or two, you know, we'll probably see record high copper prices. Um, and so that'll impact all those companies from those that look like they're going to be in, in the lower quartiles of cost of production down to those that are more leveraged um, with less uh, high quality assets, I would say. So, um, yeah, that's that's a hard one. That's that's one of those predictions you want me to make, where you're putting a a, a date. What is it? Never put the date and a prediction on the same bit of paper. Um, <laughs> well, copper's a worth a go because copper just it's so different to gold in terms of it's hard to find the scale, isn't it, to to justify building these plants. Like I suppose not in not in every case. It's just there's yeah. not many snatch and grab copper mines like there are gold mines. No, no, there's not as many kind of sitting there, resources defined, uh, ready ready for the construction decision to be made. Yeah, I, I guess you're right. There there are there are some pretty attractive ones on the TSX, um, which which are bigger. You know, they're you know they're in the billion to three billion dollar market cap range but i mean that doesn't mean they won't three or five x i think because um you know there's that fuel mining which i mentioned bhp's they invested a hundred million dollars maybe 18 months ago and then they just up again recently with another 70 or 90 million um you know and that 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 deposit uh filo del sol's had drill hits of 1300 meters at 1.3 percent copper and 850 meters at 1.8 percent copper like absolute belters so they're they're there and that project will be developed there's companies like that one there's another one ngx which 
They've got a very large, low-grade-ish porphyry. It's got a high-grade component of 0.8% copper, but then you know they've had this discovery of 60 metres at 7.5% copper um, relatively nearby. So um, there are... You know, if if you have got the ability to invest globally, you know it it just widens the the lens of things you can look at. And copper's a copper's a pretty good example, I think. Copper it, copper's interesting in terms of the fact that when it, if the prices do go up a lot, because a lot of it the supply is going to have to come from the big porphyries like the ones yep. that you've just talked about. Because the to find a to find a like a massive sulfide like a degrossa for example is uh, obviously not the easiest thing to do they don't uh, they don't come up too often so there's definitely no. going to be a flurry of capital that is going to be rushed into this if if this copper price increase transpires it's been getting talked about for a while but um obviously yeah. depending on the uh, recessionary and interest rate uh, macro side of things going to yeah. determine when that's going to happen yeah i think um just on that quickly, and you know, we're not macro um, investors, and you know, probably should take everything I say here with a grain of salt. You know, we're we're more kind of bottom up mining. That's our expertise. But you know, China, if they do stimulate that, that'll cover a lot of the sins of a of a North American, well, more than cover the sins of a of a North American recession. I think in terms of copper demand. So you know there is that to kind of hang our hats on in the in the short term as everyone expects um, this recession. On on copper for just a moment longer, we've mm. um, spoken uh, on the Money Mind team recently about another potential listing here, the Metals Acquisition Corp. Oh, the SPAC, which, which I've um, heard Terra being referenced in as well. Oh, the I'm boys got their payday. They yeah, got their, they got their bloody payday. The billion that they'd be loaded now. Specifically <laughs> on the on the financing and on the the various streams and such that the that the company did to get this one off the ground. I'm I'm keen yep. to get your take on. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess they they did what they needed to do. I think all of the people involved would have preferred, including us, I guess, that that it wasn't done in a in a SPAC, but but that's that's the way it transpired and it was done at a different time. So um you you can't you can't completely blame them for that. I I think all you want to do is just look at that asset and um Maddie, you would know more or you would have forgotten more about underground mining than I've ever known. But um, you know, it is getting deep there, but it's also got reserves still in the four or five percent copper range. So I think um while it won't be the easiest, I think it comes out and given the dearth of copper producers on the ASX, how many there are, four only producers. Um, you know, I think it will compare pretty well. And so that was that's our interest. And so I think when that they've got the New York Stock Exchange listing now, they'll dual list. Uh, on the ASX, I think this half, second half of 23, and then it'll definitely be one to watch because I think it should compare pretty favourably to to the incumbent uh, copper producers on the ASX. So when you said, um, probably for listeners and myself, I won't lie, when yeah. you said um, it, you would have rather it not been a SPAC, but it, that's the way it transpired, why, why did it transpire that way? For the CSA transaction, yeah, I think uh, the the um, directors and the the CEO Mick McMullen initially went, you know, they thought that that would be a good vehicle to use um, 
at the time, I actually probably should probably should ask them exactly how how it came about like that. But but I mean, at the time, SPACs were all the rage. So, um, like I said, you can't blame them for that. But um, it, it now it's a bit complicated. So because we've got this New York listed stock, and I'd just prefer it be ASX listed on a uh, on a mining exchange. But but no, doesn't change the asset. Doesn't doesn't change anything. What do you what do you say about that New South Wales area for copper? It seems like if there's Cobar, going to be yeah. any copper flare up in Australia, it's going to be in that Cobar Basin and and that sort of area. Yeah, it's um it's interesting, but like a lot of um you know like De Grusser, you know the area around De Grusser now looks like Swiss cheese. People have been trying to find the the follow up or the other lens or or whatever the the geological repetition, but it hasn't been found and nothing in Cobar has been found that's as good as um, CSA mine. So, yeah. um, you know, whoever's got CSA mine, I guess, kind of has the has the power in the area. But at the same time, it is exciting in terms of those polymetallic. If we get a good copper market, you know, those companies, I think, will perform well. Matt, on, on lithium now, we, we had a bit of mm. anecdotal evidence in, in the last couple of weeks with Sweden sort of changing the, the structure of their fossil-free renewable goals um, for 20 or so years' time. I'm interested to sort of hear your thoughts, given it makes up a pretty large portion of the, the commodity weighting in the Green Metals Fund, how you view yeah. the, the sentiment changing toward uranium and nuclear power becoming more of a component of the energy mix. Yeah, I mean, it's been uh, for those people invested in uranium. It's been always a story of next year, next year for about ten years or something, um, which has been frustrating. But that said, if you look at it, the fundamentals of the market look as good as they have, you know, in in the last ten years, um, and we have that nice um, long term story of of. Uh, countries wanting to generate carbon-free baseload power, and and uranium's one of the only ways that, well, the only way they can do that, really. Um, and it's a perfect complement to renewable energy sources. So that's a nice long-term story. Small modular reactors. I think that's all coming, albeit relatively slowly. Um, uh, our interest is also in the a bit shorter term. In um, you know, a bit of a squeeze for the lack of a better term that looks like it's shaping up with the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust in the physical market. And then there's a, another fund out of Europe just started up, which also wants to buy pounds in the physical market. So you could get that um, confluence of factors where you've got the positive long-term story and then a shorter-term um, spike added, which which is why we've got a relatively high weighting uh, there at the minute. And then, you know, spot prices kept on going up. Second half of the year is usually a a bit better period for for uranium price, but then again, you know, I've been saying that now for years. So, uh, Langers, I'm going to have to give it. you a compliment, mate, because JD's got all these notes and questions prepped, and Langers is just rolling <laughs> them off like nothing here. So, mate, tell you what, uh, very very impressed with the knowledge you bring into the table here, mate. We'll keep going with a, with another one of my scripted questions. <laughs> Next Gen is a stock I've heard you guys speak about in the past and just as it sort of relates to that supply-demand dynamic because it's such a such a huge, you know, deposit and potential mine in the future, how do you think yeah. that sort of impacts what the, the commodity price itself does in the future given the supply it brings online in whatever, 2027 or something? Yeah, twenty. That's what I was about to ask you. What What is the latest on what they're saying? Because it's been 
along, and undoubtedly an absolute belter of an asset yeah. and one, you know, uh, you know, the most valuable mining uh, commodity assets outside of a major in, across any commodity. Um, and one which actually, you know, was one of the contributing to Terra Capital posting some good numbers back in 2015 or 16 when we first took a position in it. Um, how it impacts the market, I mean, the, if, you, if you look at all the in-situ uranium, obviously if it all came on, we'd be really swamped. But the, I think if you look at the timelines of when uranium is on the ASX and the TSX, when they think they're going to produce and when they actually commission and, and produce commercially, um, I think there'll be a bit of a lag like there are other commodities. Um, but uh, particularly with uranium, you've got a lot of brownfields restarts that are typically harder than management teams think until they get in there. Um, and then with a, a deposit like um, Arrow or Rook One, um, you know, it's a complicated deposit. Um, and so, yeah, I I think uh, uranium price uh, react favorably in the in the shorter term before before that comes online and starts to impact the market. Now, lithium's a, another one of I've heard you speak about with the regards to to Canada too, and yeah. it's something we've spoken about quite a bit in the past, specifically relating to the the cost curve of how uranium's going to shape up. And obviously, there's been a lot of trouble with some of these um, mines coming on and ramping up and so on. But how do you sort of look at how that cost curve looks in the future? I mean, we spoke about BHB who decided not to go into the commodity at all because it's just too flat a cost curve. What, what are you sort of seeing there and what sort of perhaps time horizons do you have on those investments? Sorry, on the on the lithiums in Canada? Yeah, I think, I think Patriot is yeah. one that I'd heard you reference, yeah. but lithium more generally. Yeah, yeah. Um- Lithiums, you know, I just spoke about delays in commissioning, funding, construction, um, and it's something that we're always cognizant of um, because when you're in construction phase, um, you typically only have negative news. You know, very rarely does someone come in under cost, under under um, under time frame that they suggested, and lithium's been case in point there. I think um, Canaccord has actually done some uh, very good research on this, looking at forecast production dates versus actual, and I think the average delay is three years. So between permitting, which can be a little bit more difficult in Canada um, because you're often dealing with multiple First Nations groups um, and then and then the same type of environmental permitting process we have here, um, plus plus the the trials and tribulations of permitting uh, of, of building um, uh, lithium uh, processing facilities that produce on spec material. You know, I think that keeps pressure on on the supply um, and demand. You know, we've got that kind of constrained supply versus demand, which you know, demand continues. EV sales continue to um, outperform even the most kind of bullish analyst expectations. So. You know, I think the mar- even though there is a you know there's a wave of supply coming, it's lithium is a relatively abundant uh, commodity geologically. Um, despite that, I think yes, yeah, still have um, you still have relatively high lithium prices for the foreseeable future, next few years at least. Right, we touched on gold a bit, mate, but we'll, we'll head back to it because because um, because you got to disclose all your 
percentages and top 10 and all that, we wouldn't have as many questions for you. So, <laughs> yeah, I was wondering where you, you've got some, uh, some presentation leaked to you. Oh, I know, buddy Joe. I don't, lucky, uh, you've <laughs> unfortunately got JD here, mate. I'd just, it's be, all on the website. I'd be winging it, mate. Um, <laughs> yeah, goal 30%, apparently. So, you're obviously, yeah, uh, and then 30. looking at TSX. Um, is it, you know, gold, is it just because it's a, it's always been there, it's always going to be there, nice and easy to understand, not really a bubble, pretty safe yeah. bet to chuck 30% in that? Yeah, well, 30 is maybe um, a, a bit higher than what we'd like, but we've had a couple of companies that have gone particularly well and so they've taken weighting up recently. Um, but just, I guess, just taking a step back on the portfolio composition because I guess that might be of some value to people. You've got a suite of commodity companies, mining companies. It's kind of not, most of them are growth-oriented, you know, forward-looking if you're looking at base metals or battery metals, um, more growth-oriented. It's nice to have part of your portfolio which is a bit, um, you know, more defensive, um, that said, you know, we, we're out, we want to have, you know, usually between 15 and 20% of the portfolio in gold. Um, and then we, we want to then and say, what are the best, what are the best gold companies we can find anywhere on a risk adjusted basis that we can get exposure to. And so we've had recently, we've had, uh, one in, on Canada called collective mining, which has performed really well. Ticker is CNL, um, They've got, I think the resource now is 3.2 million ounces at three grams per t- Looks like it'll at least double from that. And it's had some absolute belter drill hits, like 300 metres at three and a half grams and 165 metres at six and a half. You know, it's a, it's looking like a, a real genuine discovery and one which could get into that significant um, level of ounces, you know, above kind of five mil when it starts to become a really serious deposit. So that's performed well and taken our, our gold um, weighting higher. And then we've also had Emerald Resources on the ASX, which um, has the in Cambodia and is run by Morgan Hart, uh, formerly of Regis, and before that, Equigold. Um, you know, both both of those, interestingly, are, you know, pretty typical of our modus operandi, I guess, where the spend the most time assessing is management and their ability to bring an asset from through development and into production and, and then or if they're in production to continue to produce well from um and so in the case of of collective um Ari Sussman is the CEO there he sold his last company called Continental Gold sold that to Zijin not that long ago for a couple of billion dollars and then went straight into um, developing collective and so we kind of followed him in there and then Morgan Hart everyone knows Regis here in Australia I think they've built now seven mines on time on budget and the last one Ocval they built on time on budget and during COVID so you know you're dealing with a top team um, and and that's really what we're looking for a team that we can back and stick with them and know that they'll do the right thing. Emerald, it flies under the radar a bit, doesn't it? It's like, God, it's, it's well over a billion-dollar market cap. Now. Yeah, it does, and I th- and I think it's because it's got the asset in Cambodia. I mean, it's been a great place. I mean, we don't have any WA gold miners at the minute just because the cost environment's mm. a bit tough, um, whereas in Cambodia, I think he's at still at between 800 and 900 uh, all-in sustainings. Um, 
So they'll, I think they'll have a second operation in Cambodia, and then they've also got the Bullseye tenements in WA. And actually, they had some announcements. They had an announcement out today with some hits. There's some amazing hits that have come out of that um, group of tenements. There's been, I don't know, the ones I saw today anyway, 15 at 6 and 30 at 5, you know, great, great hits. So as well, you know, yeah, the, the market cap has got up there now, but you also back him to to bring these other deposits in as well. You can't bet against him. Because And if you look at, um, you know, there's a discount for companies that operate in places like Cambodia and Africa and everything. But in terms of um, CapEx at the moment, if you're going to build something anywhere, uh, that's where you'd want it to be built because the cost environment to do it in Australia is um, ridiculous. So Because we yeah. looked at the Kiaka numbers last week. So I think, well, off, off the top of my head, what it was, three or 400 million for... 8 million ton whereas an 8 million ton plant whereas the the KCGM expansion was bloody one and a half billion for an extra 15 million ton so like yeah cost cost of capex overseas is the one favorable thing at the moment yeah and, and staff as well you know they haven't had uh wage inflation in other parts of the world like like they have in wa matt there was another commodity or another couple of commodities i wanted to touch on that you guys have spoken about so one of them to start with carbon credits. How how do you sort of think about that? How do you get exposure to that? Like it's not something we're super across here. Yeah, buy, buy green yeah. gold. <laughs> yeah, green gold. Uh, no scope for emissions, um, but um, but very small part of both portfolios. But I, I guess um, worth looking at. It's an interesting area and one which we've been coming up on. For the last few years, um, we're invested in um, development companies, so they develop the projects from which carbon tr- credits will be generated. Um, not something I'm looking to add to. You know, they went well for a while, and then um, we've still got some legacy positions. Um, nonetheless, an interesting space. And if you talk to anyone in the carbon market at the minute, they're super bullish on the next couple of years. So, a space to watch, but not not one I'm investing more cat- capital into gotcha. at the moment and and yeah. hydrogen was another one that was sort of you know had a had a lot of chatter 2020 2021 and so on and yeah. since it died off a bit what's the yeah. what's the sort of thesis in those yeah positions? so yeah i think you know the energy transition throws up a lot of opportunities i guess and and hydrogen i think will be part of it the problem is in the listed equity space, there's just not that many ways to play it. And of our assessment of all the hydrogen companies out there, not many are, are realistically going to get into production um, in our view. Um, but Frontier Energy, which is in WA, it's just um, a ballpark inland from uh, Quinana, I guess, uh, a bit further south than that. But, yeah, they've they've um, got a location and um infrastructure that'll mean they'll actually be able to get into production so we've got a we've got a we do have a small waiting there again um and that's more company specific because we think those guys are doing a really great job um yeah and then i mean if you look at at you know the inflation reduction act spending there's huge swathes of capital available for hydrogen projects so it could be an area to watch but again hard to find investable options in the listed space and uh- 
I haven't, there, haven't heard him talk about nickel much today, JD. I'm, is well, he, I'm predicting to, a bit bearish. Maybe. About to pose a question: Are there are there commodities, and let's chat about nickel as well, that you're perhaps more bearish in the in the short to medium term on? Yeah, um, and I don't want to get in trouble with anyone, obviously. Um, but oh, your secret's safe with us, Langers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not at Jeff. all. So, um, you know, I just think you know the. The nickel coming out of laterite in Indonesia with Singshan and the like, that although that is relatively high cost nickel production, that part of the cost, you know, that part of the product uh, global production is expanding at such a rate that I think it's putting pressure on the entire nickel market. Um, you know, and they have recently talked about producing nickel mats. So that is, you know, nickel to rival that which comes out of nickel sulfide deposits for, for use in batteries. Um, so, so there is that, I mean, that's also very high cost, but also something I guess to be aware of. And so just on a shorter term basis, um, we're pretty light on nickel. That said, you know, always, if you can find a high quality nickel sulfide deposit anywhere in the world, it's inherently valuable. I think there's just not that many of them. Hey, JD's um JD's done the research on your performance even mate right you can't nothing nothing is secret today you ne- you're just about you're about four percent below Buffett status so late it's pretty impressive <laughs> over 13 on years 15.6 percent compounded over 13 years mate she's yeah. better than the bank yeah 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 we we've we have been a little bit volatile but yeah I mean that's that's the idea of running a concentrated portfolio. You know, we we only run, um, you know, ten stocks make up fifty percent of our of both the the grain fund and the natural resources strategy, and and that does we think uh, gives you better results over the medium to longer term, but it does impact short term volatility. So yeah, I mean, hopefully, we you know, Jeremy started the fund in two thousand and ten. I joined in 2013, you know, and May 2011 was when commodities really turned down. So, you know, and they haven't looked that good until 2020. So hopefully, you know, in the next 10 years, we'll do better than that, we hope. What we, When you're long only, and because yeah. that's when the volatility comes in, why why do companies go long only and why do, uh, sorry, why do funds go long only and why do other funds go long short? Yeah, g- good question. Um, our our skill set is in long only investing. We've never been short investors. That's the first thing. The next thing is that it's very hard to accurately hedge mid cap miners. You know, even if you know you, even if you're short, you say you've got a copper stock. You know, you you're long the stock and you're short copper. You can end up having unfavorable outcomes pretty quickly, and the, because commodity commodity prices are impacted by so many macro events and so quickly you've got to react in no time at all so i think it is a little bit difficult mind you there are other part, people in the market other fund managers you know there's like i was saying before there's not many resources funds at all we need them all to get up and and perform well and and support the industry um but yeah, I, yeah, I'm I'm thankful that we're long only all the time. It's hard enough running a fund when you've got an exchange that operates all through the night, 
um, hard, <laughs> not not hard enough to fight. sleep hard enough to sleep anyway let alone if you if you short something in on a bullish day in north america <laughs> or something you know god yeah matt i just wanted to touch on something you just said there again sort of the difference between when you guys sort of started the fund when you joined the fund how, how different are commodity markets from now at looking back a decade ago yeah so um i guess the key change is that that lack of capex and the unwillingness from the major miners to spend that money on new projects. You know, they're all all the major miners got wrapped over the knuckles by the large global investors after after 2010, I guess, which was the end of the or 2011, which was the end of the mining boom, where you know Rio had invested in Riversdale and BH, um, Alcan, and you know there was all those top of the market transactions, which in hindsight looked like. Uh, poor use of capital when really that should have been returned. And so, you know, the the CEOs of these major mining companies still haven't gone back to to that real um, green or even brownfields expansions of significant scale. And so it's the CapEx in the industry. And, you know, there's a bunch of charts out there showing CapEx in the mining industry. You know, that's the key thing, you know, really that, that drives um, mining uh, – commodities production so that that's the key thing i think other things you know esg is probably the other big change where um you know we've made changes to our investment process because companies that are doing the right thing on the environmental side so getting lower cost of capital you know they're getting economic benefit benefits from doing the right thing and so for us it's not just a a box ticking exercise. It's you know we're we're assessing companies' ESG credentials because they'll have more favourable economic outcomes in the longer term. More equity participants can can buy the stock, um, but then also they've got a lower risk profile because there's less risk of you know an asset being taken off them or or increased taxes or whatever the case may be. So um, they're probably the two things that spring to mind. Mate, unfortunately, you've done such a great job today that we're going to have to have you on again sometime, mate. Uh, <laughs> mate, it's been an absolute, absolute ripping chat. I've yeah, had really a, appreciate your time, Matt. Had a bloody uh, hope ball, I, mate. Hope Thanks I'm, so much for the time. Yeah, uh, no worries. Thanks for having me on. I'm a long time listener of the show, first time uh, guest. It was it was great. I love listening to the show pretty much every day. It's great. I'm, if I miss something during the day, you guys got it covered. Yeah, oh, these boys do. Yeah, oh, and I'll keep the uh, knee slappers coming, mate. Don't you worry <laughs> about that. Mate, um, too easy. Mate, we've we got to come over to Sydney soon because i uh, tell you what, yeah. I noticed uh, a lot of people in Sydney hadn't even heard of us yet when I was over there, so I think we've got to do a bit of a road bit show. A bit of promo on Absolutely. the cards. Yeah, and um, I think Gigi sent you that text about a mate with a pub over here. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, there's that option potentially. Too. Oh, I can't Love wait. It. Mate, when you, when you come to Perth, let us know. Yeah, I'll, uh, yeah we'll do. some Swan Draft, Cobber. <laughs> Would love that. Thanks again, Matt. Good on Easy. you, Wangers. Cheers, boys. The information contained in this episode of Money of Mine is of general nature only and does not take into account the objectives, financial situation, or needs of any particular person. Before making any investment decision, you should consult with your financial advisor and consider how appropriate the advice is to your objectives, financial situation, and needs.